You guys are going to be, uh, you're going to in for a treat. I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I'm sitting with uh, a man who looks younger than he is. Uh, he's a father of three, ages 18, 20, and 26. He's also a grandfather. Uh, but Mike Norton has uh, not only great experience in having been LDS, but he has the most unique exit from it and what he has spent his time doing since he's left. And this guy's kind of a walking encyclopedia of insights relative to the LDS temple. Uh, some of you, because you've already emailed me, uh, might know him as New Name Noah. And, and all of the information that he's put out online, let's see, he has 70 uh, uh, videos. He has 4,708,000 views. He has in 215 countries. So perhaps if anybody's had an a, uh, influence on keeping people out of Mormonism from joining it in the first place, recognizing it as a cult because it is definitely a religious cult and uh, is able to help people see the frank idiocy of it, it's this guy. So as we've been doing through the shows, uh, we've been learning about where people came from what their early religious upbringing was, and then, and then we'll let Mike kind of take us uh, in from that. So my brother, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Go for it. Born, raised, mom and pop, sisters, brothers, Mormonism. I, uh, I was, uh, as they say, born in the covenant. Um, I was born in uh, 1968, uh, raised in the church. In fact, I'm a big history buff, and I... As, as a Latter-day Saint, I was always proud of the fact that I was baptized on a, on a very significant date. I was baptized four days after my eighth birthday on July 4th, 1976. Oh, wow. The bicentennial. Huge that, that, day. Yeah, it was pretty cool. My, I remember my dad saying at the time all the fireworks and the big celebration across the country was because I, you know, I, I chose to be baptized. Um, obviously, I, you know, it was, uh, he was pulling my chain there, but... Um, yeah, I was born and raised in the church. Uh, I, I grew up in a church when, uh, when we would go to church literally three times a week. It'd be twice on Sunday. You go in the morning and then you go home and you come back in the afternoon. And then you had uh, like primary uh, during the week. Although I, I don't recall what day of the week primary was, Tuesday or Wednesday. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just remember I, we'd go several times a week. Um, I went to the seminary uh, when I was older. Um, had a happy, healthy, normal childhood. Grew up primarily in, in uh, Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, moved. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was like 12. Um, and, and me and my siblings uh, stayed with our mother and we moved to, uh, to Colorado. Um, it should be noted uh, because it'll definitely come up later in the story that uh, I, I had... As a child, I had an interesting uh, hobby. Um, barcodes came out in the, in the mid-1970s, and I remember as a child being fascinated by barcodes. Huh. Uh, I, to this day, say I, I, really, I really don't have a lot of talents. Um, I, I, I don't play any musical instruments, can't really sing, um, uh, not much of an artist, uh, really. Um, with the exception of barcodes. As a child, uh, they came out in the mid-1970s, uh, and when they came out, I remember going shopping with my mom and, and uh, watching the, the checker scan these barcodes. And so one day I, I peeled a, a label off like a can of peas, and the next time we went to the store, I asked my mom to get a can of peas. We go to the check stand, and, and as the checkers scan and everything, I, I said, Wait, can you scan this instead? And I had actually taken a, a ballpoint pen and had by hand meticulously hand drawn this barcode. I copied a barcode by hand. I, you know, I had a ruler and, and I'm and I'm doing this. And so I hand this guy my hand drawn barcode. He runs it under the scanner a couple times, it doesn't work, and then on the third swipe it, it boop, can of peas, you know, 98 cents. I'm like, sweet. You know, and, and so I I I Tried to perfect that skill as a child. It just it barcodes fascinated me, mm. um, and and that that was something that I did for a few years as a child, and then I just kind of quit doing it. Mm. Um, and and that'll play later on in, in the story here. But 
I had a happy, healthy, normal childhood. Um, you know, living in, in Colorado as a teenager, um, I actually attended Columbine High School uh, back oh. well before the incident. Mm -hmm. um, went to uh, to seminary. Um, I actually rather enjoyed it. Uh, this is you know this is in, in Colorado. When you went to seminary, you would go to your local chapel at five thirty in the morning to some you know horrible hour and and. Uh, Half the time you'd pull up two chairs, one for you, one for your feet. Um, <laughs> sometimes you'd, you know, you'd be wearing your pajamas, or uh, you know, you'd bring a blanket. Uh, the teacher would bring donuts on Friday. I really actually enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to Utah when I was 17 years old. Um, at the age of 16, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd, uh, which basically meant that uh, that I would look for excuses to not go to church because, like any normal uh, teenage kid, going to church for three hours on Sunday isn't exactly, you know, something that, that you look forward to. Right. Um, so I, you know, I was working Kentucky Fried Chicken as a kid and, and every single one of my friends and coworkers smoked cigarettes. And so I, I started smoking cigarettes as a 16 year old and, and I had a brother who was attending Utah State University in Logan, Utah. He came out to Colorado to visit. Uh, it took him all of 30 seconds to realize Mike is hanging out with, with, with a bunch of dirtbags. All these kids smoke. I mean, you know, these are the scum of the earth. Uh, so he convinced our mother to allow me to move to Utah with him. So he'd kind of get me on the, uh, on the path to uh, straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked. Uh, I actually moved to Utah. He used a story that his roommate moved out. He couldn't afford to pay the rent on his own, and so he needed me to move out to Utah with him, get a job so I could pay half the rent. It was all a sham, <laughs> just to get just to get me under his wing and 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 get me away from these friends I was hanging out with, and it worked. Mm. Moved to Utah, quit smoking, started going back to church and all that, and I'm you know 17 and 18, and uh, you know met a girl, fell in love. Um, you know, 19's coming up real quick, uh, and back then, this is, you know, 19 is the, the age you go on a mission. And I almost didn't go on a mission, uh, frankly, because I, I, I lacked confidence in myself, and I feared that I would be called on a foreign-speaking mission, and I feared that I wouldn't be able to learn the language. Hmm. Um, it really was just a, a lack of, of confidence in myself. Um, I prayed about it. Uh, in fact, I remember distinctly, I was in the parking lot of the, of the Logan Temple, uh, and I, I felt an overwhelming, uh, frankly at the time, I would have described it as an overwhelming spiritual experience. I felt like that the Lord definitely wanted me to go on a mission. Um, I did. I, I uh, accepted a mission call. Uh, I went to the California Ventura mission. And it would be an understatement to say that I was as passionate of a missionary uh, as a Mormon as I am for the truth as a former Mormon. And I'll, I'll give you an example. In my very first area, I, uh, so I went to the California Ventura mission. My first area was Bakersfield. I said to my training companion, why don't we go down to this Baptist church down the street and ask the minister if we can teach his congregation what Mormons believe? Because you know he, he's gonna do it. I mean, it, it's, this is in the, the mid-1980s, well, it's 87, and it was not uncommon for Baptist ministers to have a lesson on, on what those pesky Mormons are, are gonna try and tell you when they knock on your door. And so I, I figured, you know, let's, let's give it to him from the horse's mouth. Um, in fact, I even remember the, I don't remember the name of the church, but it was a Baptist church, and the minister's name was Garth Black. My companion and I, uh, he, my companion thought I was nuts. Uh, but he's, he, yeah, he's like, all right, whatever. So we go to this church, and basically I just told the minister, um, you know, a, a lot of churches like to educate their their congregation on what Mormons believe, and sometimes they get the facts a little a little off, a little wrong. 
so we were wondering if you would allow us to teach your congregation what the Mormons believe. I mean, I was... <laughs> Looking back on it now, I, I laugh at, at my naivete. Uh, and your zeal. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I figured, you know, Parley P. Pratt and Hebrew C. Kimball, sure. those guys were teaching congregations. Why can't we? Mm. Uh, and and, and, and Miss, Mr. Black, uh, Garth Black, politely declined our <laughs> invitation. Uh, but it wasn't the last time I would try that. Mm. So every area of my mission, I served in, in uh, the San Fernando Valley. I served in, in uh, Northridge, California, Moorpark, California. I served uh, in a little, little town outside of Santa Barbara. Um, and everywhere I'd go, we would find the local, uh, usually the non-denominational and or uh, Baptist church. Mm. Uh, churches. Um, we stayed away from the Catholic churches because we knew the Catholics weren't, they weren't bothering with us. Um, we wouldn't bother the Lutherans or the Methodists, but, but those darn Baptists, you know, <laughs> we, we knew they had, they had a Jones and for the Mormons. So uh, we would make a point. I, I made a point of, of taking all of my mission companions to the local churches in the area. And in my last area, uh, Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, my second to last companion, his name was Jeff Adams. Uh, I don't know if, he, if he'll ever see this, but Jeff Adams was honestly one of the nicest guys you'll, you'll ever meet. Um, I, I told him a little story. He's like, yeah, I'm down for it, whatever, you know, you do the talking. We go to the first Christian church of Thousand Oaks, and uh, I gave the same spiel to the guy, you know, let us teach your congregation, all that. And he says, I don't see why not. That would be a lovely idea. And I, just, I looked at my companion, he looks at me, I look back at the guy and I said, you know, we have a lot of information um, to share. We might actually need two Sundays. <laughs> so he says, I, I think we could do that. Okay, all right. And I'm like, well, well let's, let's pin him down. And I'm like, how about next Sunday and the Sunday after that? And he said, well, you know, so we worked it out. And sure enough, just a couple weeks later, we were scheduled to teach, not his entire congregation, but we were scheduled to teach his entire adult Sunday school class what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches. Mm. It's the first Christian church of Thousand Oaks. I'm, I'm sure they're still there. Nice people. Um, so we taught the first discussion to him the very first Sunday. And then Elder Adams got transferred, and I get a brand new companion straight out of the MTC. <laughs> and I'm telling him as we're driving back to Thousand Oaks from Ventura, where the mission home was, that uh, what our schedule was like that week. I'm like, well, let's see. So on Tuesday, you know, we've got uh, dinner with the Cranmers. On Wednesday, uh, we're um, uh, teaching the second discussion to Bob Johnson. On Thursday, we don't have anything. Let's see, let's see, Friday, Saturday. Uh, see, Sunday, we're teaching the First Christian Church of Thousand Oaks Sunday School class. Monday is, and he's like, we're, we're what? He was, he was British, by the way. Nice guy, Greg Freeman. Uh, he he was a little as as the British say gobsmacked. Yeah, he said, "You you pulling my leg?" And I said, "I do a horrible British <laughs> yeah. accent." But I said, "No, actually, we we taught them last Sunday, and we gave them all Book of Mormons, and uh, and we're teaching them again this coming Sunday." Mm. I said, "You know, I don't know, I don't know what they taught you in the MTC, but around here we teach congregations, Elder." Uh, and just, I said it dead straight face, and, and uh, we, we did. It was, it was literally the highlight of my mission. You look like you enjoyed the mission. Your face kind of glows as I, you talk about it. I did enjoy it. Um, you know, I'm not going to say I was a perfect missionary. I, I, uh, I, I got in a little trouble at the very beginning of my mission because I felt like as a, as a representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we needed to know what the enemy was saying. And the enemy was the rest of the world. Um, there was anti-Mormon literature out there. And frankly, some of it was a load of crap. Uh, I will specify one very specific example, and I will strongly encourage the man to, to challenge me on this. There's a book called The Godmakers, Ed Decker. Ed Decker, if you're watching this, in my opinion, which relieves you of any legal liability, in my opinion, Ed Decker is a liar, and his book, The Godmakers, is trash. And uh, there's a reason why the book, The Truth About the Godmakers, which I think you can still buy in bookstores, 
uh, is twice as thick as the Godmakers, because in my opinion, the Godmakers was nonsense. Mm -hmm. It painted Mormons out to be literally Satan worshipers. Mm -hmm. They're worshiping Satan. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. uh, I was born and raised in the church. I'm pretty sure if I was worshiping Satan, I would have known it. Um, and it was, it was just trash. So I learned what the anti-Mormons were saying about us. And, but I didn't want to support them financially. So I would send them letters and I would say, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Mormon church. And, you know, well, is there any chance you'd send me a copy of your book? And, and they would. They'd send them to me for free, typically. Uh, there was a company, I think they're still in business, called Firefighters for Christ. Oh, yeah. Mormon missionaries, so at least back in the 1980s, we would send them a letter requesting copies of their, their cassette tapes. Mm. We would then record over their cassette tapes and make, like, recordings and send them home. So like I would do audio recordings to my girlfriend and I would send them home to her on Firefighters for Christ's <laughs> audio tapes, usually the anti-Mormon ones. Yeah. Um, but I, I got to know the anti-Mormon literature inside and out. Uh, I kind of became the unofficial mission apologist. I was the one when somebody had a question about some anti-Mormon uh, information mm -hmm. that they didn't have the answer to, They'd call me. Uh, I'd, I'd get I get phone calls from you know sister missionaries would call and say, Elder Norton, is it true that you know Joseph Smith said there's men living on the moon and they're dressed like Quakers and they live to be a thousand years old and and I would say yes, yes he did, but then I would give an explanation as to why he said that and I'd put it into historical context. And then they would go to their investigators and say, okay, well, here's the explanation. And did Brigham Young say there's men living on the sun? Yes, yes, he did. But let me explain why. Um, so I got really good at rationalizing. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I, I got pretty good at, at being an apologist for the church. Um, so you obviously have a love for truth. When you're, when you're doing that, you're, st you're still a, you're a truth guy. Absolutely. You're a truth guy. Absolutely. Um, you know, as they say, uh, the truth shall set you free. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I was passionate about the truth. Mm -hmm. And there was, I, I called a lot of these anti-Mormons on the phone. How I got their phone numbers, actually, because this is before the Internet. This is the 1980s. I called Sandra Tanner, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, and told them, well, I'm thinking about joining the Mormon church, and, and, you know, what can you tell me about it? And can you, you know, next thing I know, I've got Ed Decker's home phone number, and, and, and uh, Walter Martin, the Bible answer mm -hmm. man, and Chuck and Dolly Sackett, and mm -hmm. Granny Greer, and, oh, yeah. and, you know, Ed Decker, and, and Dick Bear, and all of these anti-Mormons, I had their home phone numbers. Mm -hmm. So I start calling these people and I'm telling them, hey, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Mormon church. Can you send me some of your materials? And, you know, that way I'm not supporting them financially, but I'm getting their anti-Mormon literature and, and studying it. But there was, there's really just one that frankly frightened me. Hmm. I got a copy of Mormonism, Shadow or Reality yeah. by Gerald and Sandra Tanner. And I probably got about 10 pages into that book and it, it scared me. It scared me bad. And I put that aside. Well, one of my phone calls was to Dick Bear. Uh, I, I believe he was one of the, the co-producers of, of the movie, The Godmakers. And Dick Bear called back. I left a message. He called back and somebody answered the phone, one of the missionaries in our apartment. And he says, uh, he asked for Mike Norton. And I got on the phone and he says, Elder Norton? Mm. And I didn't know who it was, so I said, yes. Mm. And he goes, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> he, you, he said, you're, you are a liar, and no, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell on you. I'm going to call your mission president. How dare you uh, waste my time with this yeah. and all that. You're a Mormon missionary. And uh, I, uh, uh, you know, he did. He ratted me out. Dick Bear called my mission president, basically mm. said, you got one of your missionaries calling me, pretending to be an investigator, and I got read the riot act wow. by my mission president. It did not stop my desire to learn their ways, but I definitely avoided Gerald and Sandra Tanner's stuff because it just scared me. Jump ahead with me. Uh, don't want to uh, yeah. prolong too much because we don't have much time, but 
came back, got married, married in the came temple. Back, got married in the temple six weeks after I returned home from my mission to the, the girl that I fell in love with before my mission. Mm-hmm. Had three kids with her. Um, uh, was still an apologist. Dick, uh, uh, Ed Decker came on tour, on a little speaking tour in the early 90s uh, in my town in Logan, Utah. And I contacted his ex-wife and got some dirt on him because like a good little Mormon, I didn't attack the message, I attacked the messenger. Mm, yeah. So I showed up at the church where Ed, uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, Ed Decker was, was preaching and put little flyers on the windshields of all the cars in the parking lot, wow. basically saying, you know, I don't remember what I was saying at the time. I think it was essentially saying that, you know, he, he, he had an affair on his wife and multiple affairs and he wasn't paying child support. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it was personal character attacks mm-hmm. on Ed Decker. It wasn't his message. It was, it was him personally. Mm-hmm. And then the next day he went to Brigham City. And I followed him there. And that's when Ed and I kind of got into a little bit. He called the police on me. The wow. police basically said... He's standing on the public sidewalk handing out flyers. Uh, he's not breaking any laws. You got a problem with it, sue him. He, he threatened to, and, and I said, bring it on. Uh, he never did sue me. Um, You're but proactive. I, I, I was a passionate Mormon. I yeah. mean, as a missionary, I'm going to churches, teaching congregations, and, and when I got home from my mission, if some you know, anti-Mormon came to my town, he's going to have me to deal with. So what happened? Um, flash forward to around September of 2001. Um, I was making good money, uh, very good money. I was, I was pulling in about 200 grand a year and uh, I wanted to find a, a piece of art to hang on my living room wall that would combine my love of the church with my love of history. And I thought of a perfect idea, I'm gonna buy an original Mark Hoffman forgery. And, and for any viewers that don't know who Mark Hoffman is, Google him. He, he, he was a member of the LDS church in the 1980s. He conned church leaders out of hundreds of thousands of dollars um, by selling them forged documents, including the infamous Salamander letter. Um, I had a budget of about $10,000, so I figured I'm going to find a, uh, excuse me, I'm going to find a uh, Mark Hoffman forgery. So I go online, I Google Mark Hoffman forgeries for sale, and I didn't find one, but instead I found a website, um, uh, Dr. Shade's page on Mormonism or something like that, uh, made by a guy named Jason Gallantine. And I'm reading this story, and it was a story of the Kinderhook plates. Mm. And for your viewers that aren't familiar with the Kinderhook plates, in a nutshell, uh, Kinderhook is a town near Nauvoo, Illinois. A couple of guys decided to con Joseph Smith. They made some bogus little plates, some little brass plates with some chicken scratches on it and, you know, dug them up and somebody, of course, said, hey, the Mormon prophet can translate that. And the next thing you know, these plates are in front of Joseph Smith and, and he says, and I, and I believe the exact quote was, as he's looking at these plates, I see they contain a record of the man with whom they were buried. He was a descendant of Ham (laughs) through the loins of the Pharaoh, and he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. And of course, all the Mormons are like, yay! And and of course, the times and seasons, the the Mormon newspaper had a a picture of, of, uh, or I don't know what they call it, lithograph or whatever, of of all these kinderhook plates on the front page of the paper. And... Uh, the a local newspaper said this is going to be nothing short of a sequel to the Book of Mormon. Well, Joseph Smith had a habit of dragging things out because he had to keep fleece in the flock. And so, for example, when he got the Egyptian papyrus that was used to create the Book of Abraham, he took years to translate that because, you know, Whenever somebody would say, well, you know, what's the prophet working on now? You know, he's still translating away on that papyrus, and boy, he's almost out of that. He just drag it out. He can't just crank it out one week because, you know, the next week they'd be saying, well, what have you done for us lately? And so as long as he would say, you know, I, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, then it was fine. Well, Joseph Smith got killed before the Kinderhook plate translation really ever got off the ground. Mormons to this day will say that he really never showed any interest in it. And at the time, as an apologist on my mission, I was familiar with the Kinderhook plates. I, I knew the story 
but I knew the church's version of the story. I didn't know the real version. The church's version kind of glossed over a very important fact that bothered me. And so I, I decided to go online and investigate it and find out a little more about this. And the more I investigated, the more I realized, oh my gosh, Joseph Smith, he, he lied about this. But I rationalized it as a Mormon. I figured, you know what? Maybe Joseph Smith was killed because he was about to translate and release the Book of Kinderhook. And so maybe God took him off the earth to prevent him from doing that. And so that's how my Mormon mind rationalized it was, he didn't translate it because God wouldn't allow him to, therefore the church is true and it's okay. But I felt like, you know, it just it kind of stuck in my craw and I thought, I just need to dig a little deeper and make sure that this was a one-time isolated incident and there's not multiple things that he translated that were bogus. And I thought, you know what, the most obvious thing might be the book of Abraham. I mean, you know, the church had essentially the papyrus that was found in the 1960s. Um, and, and so I went to Deseret Book and I basically said, because I didn't trust the anti-Mormons, I'm not going to trust Sandra Tanner for crying out loud, she's an anti-Mormon. So I went to Deseret Book and I basically said, I want to buy anything about the book of Abraham uh, the Pearl of Great Price, um, the papyrus, if, there's, if it has anything at all to do with the book of Abraham, I want to buy it. And I bought all these books and stuff, and I spent literally weeks reading everything. I mean, I was, I was self-employed at the time. I told my employees essentially, you're running the business, I'm busy, I got a project here. I spent about 18 hours a day, literally, every day for weeks reading and the more I read, the more I realized, oh my God, he made it up. The book of Abraham, he made it up. Uh, the evidence was so overwhelming that I just, I, I couldn't deny it. And, and I would challenge any, any Mormon who, who watches this, you've got to dig into the book of Abraham. Uh, I went on to the Doctrine and Covenants. I, I, I got out the 1833 uh, from Sandra Tanner. got an 1833 copy, photocopy of the Book of Commandments. Yeah. And the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, next to the 1984 Doctrine mm. and Covenants, all three of them. And I'm literally reading the verse 1833, 1835, 1984. And the more I read, the angrier I got because I realized he just changes everything. I mean, you know, he says one thing in 1833, and two years later, he's totally reversing his stance and, and changing it. Is this how God works? Does God give a revelation, and two years later, changes it to, to suit his needs? Mm -hmm. I, I realized quickly that the Doctrine and Covenants was a, was a sham. And the last thing was the, the keystone of my religion. <laughs> I investigated the Book of Mormon, and I got a photocopy. Uh, you can buy them online, a photocopy of the 1830 Book of Mormon and the 1984 copy of the Book of Mormon, and I'm comparing them, and I'm digging deep, and I'm, and I'm looking at the archaeological evidence, the ge uh, geological evidence, the botanical, uh, zoological, linguistic, genetic, all of the evidence. Literally every single field of science told me this isn't true. And, and you know... At the time, uh, you know, I still believe in the Bible. Um, I consider myself a Christian at the time, and and of course, there's that verse in the in the Bible that faith is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Well, what I hope for is the truth, and I felt like evidence that I can see shouldn't be trumped by evidence that I can't see. And I prayed, and I fasted, and I just, I, I had not only an overwhelming, scientifically backed testimony that the church was not true, and that Book of Mormon was bogus and all that, but I had, at the time as well, an overwhelming spiritual testimony as well that it wasn't true. And I remember saying to my wife, um, we're driving down the street. I hadn't said anything to her. I'd been studying, reading for weeks. Driving down the street, and I knew when I said 
what I was about to say to her that our lives would change because people get divorced. You know, you tell your wife, I don't believe the church is true anymore. Yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll divorce you. Sure. So we're driving along and I said to my wife, as we're driving, I'm driving, and I said, what would you say if I told you I took a big breath and I said that Joseph Smith was a pathological liar and the church isn't true. And I just looked straight ahead. I didn't even dare look at her. <laughs> and we come to a stop sign and I turn and look and she has tears streaming down her face. And she says, why would, why would you say such a thing? And I said, because the church isn't true. And Joseph Smith was a pathological liar. And she was like, go home. We were going out to dinner or something. We turned around and we went home. And I sat down with her. And I poured out all the evidence. And we talked for like three hours. And I showed her everything. You know, I told her, I, I've been reading. And she's like, what have you been reading? Everything. I've been reading everything. And the church isn't true. As, let's clean the exit, would you? Um, as a lifelong member of the church, to say that that was devastating to me would be an understatement. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life. Um, and, and yet I knew it was true. I, I knew that the evidence showed that the church is not true, and I knew that what I was telling her, that Joseph Smith was a pathological liar, I knew I was right. And it took me literally three hours of showing her evidence, and she was convinced. She was like, oh my God, you're right. I mean, to say that we, we lived in an LDS community would be an understatement. Her parents, or, as, or Mormon as they come, uh, Mike, Mike and Carolee Salveson, uh, two wonderful people lived right across the street from us. Her uncle, uh, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Salveson, uh, and his wife, Ladon, lived next door to us. Another uncle lived across the street. Their grandparents lived across the street. My entire family was LDS. Her entire family was LDS. I got three brothers that went on missions, and it was devastating. But I knew, once I knew the church wasn't true, not only would I not continue to support it financially, I was down. I mean, at the time, we were teaching the Gospel Essentials class in church. My wife and I were co-teachers. Uh, this is a class, the Sunday school class for new members and investigators. And I went to the bishop and I said, with a list of 29 concerns, and I said to the bishop, number one, I need all of these, these questions answered. I need an answer to all of these or the church isn't true and we're leaving. Number two, you need to get somebody else to start teaching our Sunday school class. And he said, well, I'll get somebody, you know, within a couple of weeks. And I said, let me rephrase. If we teach the Sunday school class next week, I'm going to teach them what I know. And he says, we will have you replaced immediately. I'm, yeah, smart move there. Um, he did not have answers to my questions. And on January 6, 2002, uh, it was Fast Sunday. I went to church that day, got up, bore my testimony. I talked about uh, Christ. I, I, I quoted a scripture in the Bible, a passage about how, uh, I think it was Jesus Christ himself saying that, that uh, you know, I, I, I don't bring peace. I, I, I you know, come with a sword or whatever, and I'll turn mother against daughter and father against son. And, and um, didn't say anything about Joseph Smith and finished my testimony. And I went and slid a eight-page letter underneath the door of our bishop. Slid an eight-page letter under the door of our stake president, basically saying, take our names off the records of the church. Uh, it's not true, and these are the reasons why. And the bishop and stake president came to our home that night. The stake president said, well, here is a problem. We may have to actually, instead of honor your request to resign, we may have to excommunicate you. Wow. I said, really? Well, what's the logic behind that? Well, because... Because we didn't just give a copy of the, bishop, of the letter to the bishop and the stake president. 
I went around and, and tacked one basically to the front door of about 40 members <laughs> in the ward. Proactive. Our home teachers, our family members, her aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody in the ward. That, that I, anybody that I knew in the ward personally, I put a copy in their mailbox or on their front door. Wow. And he said, well, because you went around and you spread this letter everywhere. And I said to him, is there anything in that letter that is not true? And he looks at the bishop, and the bishop looks at him, and they both kind of go, well, no. I said, so let me get this straight. You're telling me you're going to excommunicate me because I'm spreading the truth. Well, you're saying that the church isn't true, and you're saying that this is evidence that the church isn't true. And I said, the church isn't true, and it is evidence. And he said, well, and that's the problem. And I said, okay, let me make this easy for you. This is January 6, 2002. I said, before today, I've shown that letter to three people. Two of those three people have already left the church. So you want to you wanna play hardball? I'll tell you what. I went in the other room, came out with a stake, stake directory. And then I said, if you don't honor my request to leave the church and resign, I'm going to hand deliver a copy of that letter to every single person in this entire stake. I will be your worst freaking nightmare. So you, you go ahead and you call Salt Lake and get back with me on this and let me know, okay? So he did. And uh, they came around to seeing things my, my way. Oh, okay, we'll go ahead and let you resign. Um, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and be their worst freaking nightmare anyways. Now, that was in 2002. Uh, 2005, I... Back in the 90s, I used to be a private investigator. Uh, for, for several years, I was a private investigator, and, and one of my specialties was surveillance. Mm. Undercover surveillance. I, I would spy on cheating spouses, uh, and, and I was pretty good at it. I also uh, did a little work for the state where I would investigate uh, workman's comp fraud cases and all that. And um, so it started in 2005. I wasn't recording with cameras, but I heard online that they were making some significant changes to the Washington anointing ceremony on January 18th, 2005. So that day, I went to the Jordan River Temple, and I went to the Washington anointing, the, the initiatory, did Washington anointings. My plan was I was going to pretty much memorize the, the new script, and instead of doing that, I saw this thing that said study booth. And I'm like, oh, it can't be this easy. I walk in the study booth, and there's two guys sitting in there with laminated copies of the new script of the Washington anointing ceremony. So I just asked this guy, excuse me, can I, can I see that for a second? I look at it, and I said, oh, yeah, you know what? I think this verse here in Deuteronomy is wrong. Is there a Bible around here somewhere? And he said, oh, yeah, there's one out there. And I just stepped out, out, out of his line of sight for two seconds and walked straight out of there went home and I had the new changes to the Washington anointing ceremony, which basically meant, hey, no more naked touching, on January 18th, 2005, within hours of the changes taking effect, wow. I had them posted online on my website. And I also gave, it, uh, gave a copy to Sandra Tanner and she had it online and all that. And five, six days later, two nice men from church security showed up at my house with a letter saying, essentially, you're no longer welcome on temple property, and if you step foot on temple property, we'll have you arrested for trespassing. And I laughed and told them to get off my porch or I'll have them arrested for trespassing. Yeah. That was 2005. Hmm. Flash forward to 2011, the GOP candidate for president of the United States is Mitt Romney, a man who has sworn an oath to consecrate all of his time, talents, and everything that he has or ever will have to a cult. And I had a real problem with that. Before you go on, yeah, I just want to point something out which you may have observed. And that is, uh, I didn't know this about Mike, but uh, I mean, he just shed tears. This is a man who is passionate about being LDS. I mean, he was defending it. He wants truth. He is doing everything. And when... That rug was pulled out from under him. The reason I'm making this point is because I think because what he does now is viewed as kind of distasteful by some, and and he's he's uh, he's he's not boastful, but he's direct. It's him being burned. 
He knew he was literally burned. He's a man of passion. He's a man who wants truth. And when he discovered he had been burned, he just took that same passion that's his and has thrown it back into the institution that really has been lying to him and lying to all of us. And so I think we need to go easy on Mike with what he has done. He really hasn't changed as a human being. He hasn't become this person. The LDS church had the benefit of a passionate man in their clutches and they couldn't hold him because they weren't true. So now he's out there doing with the same, with the way I believe God made him with that passion going after the truth to expose them. So I think we need to, as a group, I don't know what kind of heat he's taking, but I'm sure he's taking it. Uh, you know, the uh, ad hominem attacks on his person and, and the way he is about it. Just look what his history is and what he's come through uh, before you pass judgment. So 2011. 2011. Mitt Romney is uh, the presidential candidate, essentially, in 2012. Uh, the GOP president, there's a realistic possibility a Mormon could be the next president of the United States. Yeah. And I was not going to do nothing about it. I knew that I could do something about it. I mean, I went into the temple. Uh, I, I keep in mind that, that in 2002, when I left the church, I started giving out temple recommends. Back then, there was no security on the temple recommends. It was just a piece of paper with a date stamped on it. And, you know, there was, they didn't have computers in the temple. They'd scan them and all that. It was just a piece of paper with an expiration date on it. And so I got a copy of an original temple recommend and just went to the Kinko's and made a color copy of it and started giving them out. And I would give them to unworthy Mormons who just wanted to go see their kid get married in the temple, but they couldn't afford to pay tithing. That's awesome. Because, you know, I mean, because what would Jesus do? Of course, he would prevent somebody from going to see their kid get married if they didn't pay enough money, right? Yeah, Isn't yeah, that? Yeah. yeah. So I, I gave, so far since 2002, I have helped, I kind of stopped counting around 200, 220-ish wow. unworthy people to attend the wedding of, of one of their loved ones, usually their own children. Wow. Well, in 2006, they changed protocol. They, and I used to, ironically, I used to work for the church doing security in the Logan Temple. Mm. And a friend of mine calls me that still worked for church security, and he said, well, do you have any idea how much you've just cost the church? And I said, how so? And he said, They've changed the temple recommends and they've added a security measure. And I said, oh, yeah, what, what did they do? And he knew my history as a child and all that. He was a good close friend. And he said, they added a barcode. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, isn't that inspired of them? I said, a barcode, huh? And let's just say, I won't say how, but uh, for several years, I would actually continue using the same template that I had, but I would hand write, all I needed was a membership number. If I knew somebody's membership number, I could hand draw a barcode on a temple recommend that it would pass muster. And I just had to get their membership number, which is relatively easy to get. So for years I was making hand drawn barcodes on temple recommends. And then I, I quit doing that because it's just so much easier. People are leaving the church in droves to the point where I just put a message out on the message board and I say, hey, I need five temple recommends for these people, you know, in two weeks. And I have, you know, non-believing closeted Mormons. You know, people, when I say closeted, I mean, you know, they still attend church because they have to, because their family, you know, doesn't, you know, wouldn't support them if they left. And they just either give me or loan me their temple recommends. And so I've been giving temple recommends to people for, for, 15 years now to help them to go see their kid get married in the temple. And uh, in 2012, I used one of those recommends actually, went to the uh, Jordan River Temple and I recorded the temple endowment ceremony. This is a ceremony where Mormons learn the secret handshakes that they believe are required to gain entry into, king, into the kingdom of God. Just really quick, where can people see that? Um, if you go to uh, YouTube and you type in New Name Noah, it's New Name Noah. Um, YouTube.com 
slash new name Noah and that'll take you to my channel. Mm. I'm on Twitter at new name Noah. Uh, my email address is new name Noah at yahoo.com. Um, I make no secret of, of who I am and, and what I do. Um, in 2012, I posted a video online called Behind the Veil. I posted it online three weeks before the presidential election. Mm. And it's almost a two million views now, but uh, a vast majority of those views were literally in the weeks leading up to the, the 2012 presidential election. Wow. And we all know now, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, lost by a relatively small margin. Uh, now, I, I don't think that my video necessarily did it. I, I, I'm sure it may have influenced some people. But in 2012, I posted Behind the Veil. And in 2013, the, the church started changing the ceremonies again. They, they, the endowment ceremony, for, in most cases, is just a movie. You go and you watch this movie, and it's, it's, it's on my YouTube channel. In 2013, they changed the movie. Uh, they really just redid it. Uh, same script, but they, they made three different versions of it because I think they didn't like the fact that the only version they had in temples was on YouTube. Wow. So they made three new versions of it, and I'm like, well, I gotta go back. Gotta get those on video now. And then I started thinking, you know what? I never recorded a ceiling ceremony, a, you know, a, a temple marriage. I never recorded uh, the washing and anointing ceremony. Hmm. So I made a rather elaborate plan, and uh, last year, uh, starting on April 10th, uh, 2016, I disguised myself rather well, I think, <laughs> and I attended uh, a ward in Arizona for 84 days um. under an assumed name. Um, I, I was using somebody else's identity uh, I won't say whether I was using it with or without permission. That's for church security to figure out. Figure that out. Ask Elohim. Um, and I, I, attended, I attended this ward for 84 days. On day 24, the bishop signed a temple recommend and handed it to me. On day 35, the stake president, actually his second counselor, signed that temple recommend and handed it to me. And so on 35 days into my 84-day uh, little infiltration, I had a temple recommend signed and handed to me by Bishop and Stake President. Now, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm, I made a, a little docu-series, I call it, mm. of this. I, I made a video called Behind the Veil 2, mm. Further Light and Knowledge. I, I posted that video um, on the 4th of July, 2016. Nice which was 40 years to the day after I was baptized. Well, this coming Saturday, uh, on September 23rd, 2016, which will be the 30th anniversary of the day that I walked into the Missionary Training Center. That's the day that my mission started, September 23rd, 1987. So 30 years later to the day, I'm posting my personal favorite episode of the making of Behind the Veil 2. Ah. And it will feature uh, my Temple Recommend interview with the member of the stake presidency. Mm -hmm. He was also in my ward. He usually sat right in front of me in the high priest group. Mm -hmm. um, I even put on the screen a little, I call it a lieometer and a discernometer. <laughs> and it keeps track of how many times I lie and how many times he catches me in the lie. Because let's face it, if you're a stake president, you should have, or a bishop, you should have the power of discernment. Sure. The Lord should tell you, this man's lying. Mm -hmm. I mean, didn't, didn't the Apostle Paul have a situation sure. like that where, where somebody tried to pull a con on him and, and the, the spirit of the power of discernment mm -hmm. told him, no, this guy's not on the up and up. Mm -hmm. Well, watch episode 11 and see if my stake president had the power of discernment. Fascinating. Spoiler alert, he did not. Wow. So uh, that's, uh, it's, it's a fun series. Um, I actually, my very first day back into the church, keep in mind, April 10th of 2016, I hadn't stepped foot in a Mormon chapel in nearly 15 years. Mm. And for 84 days, I was a, essentially a faithful, active, tithe-paying uh, member of the church. I had a home teacher, I had a calling, I went to the temple religiously. Wow. <laughs> I went to the temple 
uh, from day eight, 35 to day 84, I think I attended the temple 17, 18 times. Let oh. me ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, what was inside you during those 85 days that was pushing you to get this done, to get it on tape? I mean, truly, what's the motivation behind Mike Norton to get this whole thing done? There's, I make my videos for three groups of people. Um, 7.5 billion prospective converts to Mormonism who deserve to know what they're getting into. Uh, Mormons who have never been through the temple because they're either not old enough or, or, or they don't pay tithing or whatever the reason is, they haven't been through the temple yet. Mm -hmm. And the third group is faithful, active Mormons who've been through the temple. They know exactly what goes on in the temple, but they have this belief that, that, that God would not allow for somebody like me to go into the house of the Lord. Mm -hmm. I refer to it as the international house of handshakes. <laughs> and do what I, do what I did. I, I mean, I was... I was in the, what's, what's the name of that temple today? Ochre? Ochre Temple? Mm, yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> church security really ought to check the, check the cameras. I was in the Ochre Temple today. No power of discernment. Look at this. I, there's no disguise. No, nothing whatsoever. There's nothing they can do to stop me from going in the temple except if, if they're in tune with the Spirit of God. If if, if they truly are the only true church of God on earth, and mm -hmm. if they have the Spirit, mm -hmm. which they believe they and they alone have the ability to actually give as a gift. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Mormons believe that anybody can be influenced by the Spirit. You can feel the promptings of the Spirit. But only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the authority to actually give you the gift mm -hmm. of the Holy Ghost. The audacity of that is, is astounding. And so I, I ask faithful, active Mormons, where's your power of discernment? How is God allowing, I mean, all it would take is one person out of all the dozens and dozens and hundreds of people that I have talked with in the temples over, over the last 15 years, all it would take is one single solitary person to be in tune with the Spirit and have that still small voice say, this man doesn't belong here. They call the police, I get arrested, problem solved. But they don't have the Spirit. Nobody at the temple checking it, nobody at the veil taking you through, none of the members, not I, the stake president. I have worked as an ordinance worker in the temple. In, in 2013, I manned the recommend desk in the Salt Lake Temple and was I was the one checking the recommends as they're coming in the door. And at one point, this party comes in and the last guy in line, his recommend, it wasn't good. It, it it was invalid. I just let him go on through. I mean, I didn't care. He's, you you know, I think he's here to see a wedding or something. I'm not, who am I? To tell this guy, sorry, you're not worthy to enter the house of the Lord. Meanwhile, I'm not even a member of your church. No, I let him through. So for the three categories, the, the motive from Mike Norton is the you truth. want people that they have the truth. The, the, the truth. You know, yeah. I mean, Mormons will say what goes on in the temple is sacred. It's not secret. It's sacred. You know, I, I'm going to have to call BS on that. When I was 19 years old back before they removed the death penalties from the temple, uh, they removed the penalties in April of 1990, I literally put my hand to my throat and swore an oath that I would never reveal what I was doing in the temple. And, and rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. And, and I also pantomimed slitting my own stomach. I pantomimed ripping my heart out of my chest. Don't tell me it's not a secret when you've got people swearing an oath to never reveal what they're doing. Now, granted, they, they took out the death penalties, but if you asked a single, solitary, faithful, active, temple-going Mormon today, hey, uh, tell me in a whisper. Let's go in the chapel, and you can tell me in a reverent whisper what goes on in the temple. 
uh, can you just confirm for me that this is, in fact, the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood, the patriarchal grip or sure sign of the nail? They won't do it. So it's not secret, but it's, it's no, it's secret. Yeah, they, they hide it from people. I mean, let's face it, nobody in their right mind is going to join the Mormon church if they tell them up front, oh, by the way, eventually you're going to have to wear special underwear that will protect you from Satan. You'll have to learn special handshakes that Joseph Smith stole from Freemasonry. And, um, oh, by the way, the magic underwear, uh, you can only buy them from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's ridiculous. I mean, who in their right mind believes that in order to go to heaven, you need to wear specific underwear, you need to learn secret, uh, sacred handshakes, mm -hmm. and, and give 10% of your income to a multi-billion dollar corporation that spends those sacred precious funds on a multi-billion dollar shopping mall in Salt Lake City with a gigantic glass retractable roof. Would Jesus Christ, if he was on the earth today, spend billions of dollars on an upscale shopping mall with a retractable glass roof? Anybody that believes Jesus Christ would do that clearly knows nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seth, how are you? All right. Uh, it's been too quick. In fact, I hope we can get Mike back. I wanted to say something. I'm going to let Mike wrap it up, but... Uh, I have moved away from uh, a lot of the apologetics toward Mormonism because I, I'm viewing the Christian faith in a different way. But what everything he has said here, uh, I applaud the guy. I, I think he's ballsy. I think he is. Uh, uh, I think he is causing real eye-opening things to happen against that institution, which I still d detest. And so I, I applaud his courage and his uh, his drive. Before you give your final closing statement, which we ask you if there's anything you want to share, um, what are you doing now in terms of the faith, if any? Uh, um, we've had atheists. We've had everything. I believe in God. Okay. Um, I, I do not profess uh, or proclaim to believe what kind of underwear he wears. Uh, I don't even know if God is a he. Uh, he or a she or an it. Mm -hmm. um, although there, although a majority of the Bible, I do not personally believe there are many aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the core essentials of the teachings of Jesus Christ that I absolutely solitary, uh, absolutely b believe in. Mm -hmm. um, I believe. You should love your neighbor, you should love yourself, and, and you should love God. And I believe John 1, well, no, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Mm. Right now, uh, if, if, the most important message I could share would, would be um, just, just love. Uh, you know, there are thousands of, of children in this country right now that are Mormon and they belong to the LGBTQ community and their church belittles them with their doctrines, with their words, and, and dozens and dozens and dozens of these children are committing suicide because their own church leaders make them feel worthless. And a perfect example is that Savannah, bless her little heart, 12-year-old child gets up and pours her heart out to her congregation and just says that, you know what, she's, she's gay and, and she believes that God loves her and wants her to be happy and she wants to get a job and, and have a, a significant other and move on in life. And they turned her mic off and told her to sit down. And that little girl sat down and sobbed in her mother's lap. And that is, that is not a gospel of love. That is not what Jesus Christ taught. Not only would Jesus Christ not shut her mic off, he'd have been washing her feet by the time she finished. And, you know, I, I, I may not identify myself as, as, a, as a Christian, 
I do believe in God, and I believe that God is love, and I think that that we need to love each other. Um, you know, the old saying, what would Jesus do? Jesus would love you no matter what you were, no matter who you were, whether you're a prostitute or, or a, a saint or sinner, it doesn't matter what it is or who you are, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about love. Amen. And, and it's, we're all equal in the eyes of God. I, sen- I sense that even what you're doing is motivated by love, Mike, because the truth is very closely connected to real love, and I think it's a, a remarkable thing. Final, any final thought, or was that the final thought? Um, just uh, for anybody who, who has loved ones who are Mormons, um, that you want to help them see the truth uh, that Mormonism is, is a cult, rather than go to them and say, this isn't true, go to them with, with legitimate concerns. CESletter.com, if you can put a link to that on there. CESletter.com is a spectacular resource for Mormons truly investigating the truth. If you want the truth, look for it, because if the Mormon church is true and you look for the truth, then your, then your beliefs will be confirmed. But if you truly are looking for the truth, maybe you'll find out that the church isn't true after all. That's what I did. Appreciate it, my brother. God bless you. And we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start